0: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a great pleasure to gather together this evening to listen to Dr. John Boland's inaugural lecture. We've waited some time for this lecture. (laughs) John was promoted to full professor and named the Robert L. Stewart Professor of Philosophy and Christian Ethics in July of 2017. Good things come to those who wait. <laughs> but we are eager to hear him this evening. Dr. Bolin received his BA from St. Olaf College, and an MDiv from Union Theological Seminary in New York, and an MA and PhD from Princeton University. Dr. Bolin has served on the seminary faculty since 2007, and prior to joining the seminary community, he served as Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. Dr. Bolin is a popular teacher on our faculty for the way in which his courses engage deep ethical conundrums and contemporary realities. Some of his classics include Ethics and the Problem of Evil, Christian Ethics and Modern Times, and War and the Christian Conscience. Dr. Bolden's research interests include Christian moral thought, social ethics, moral philosophy, and modern religious thought. A reformed theological ethicist, he has published and teaches on Thomas Aquinas and a broad array of themes, including Augustine on justifying coercion, how do we respond to evil, and health, fortune, and moral authority in medicine. His most recent book, Tolerance Among the Virtues, was published in 2016 and received a favorable review in the New York Times. It is a nuanced and wide ranging evaluation of tolerance as a virtue in our pluralistic society, drawing implications for our civil society as well as Christian social and political ethics. We are delighted to now formally recognize Dr. Boland's promotion to full professor. Look forward to your lecture this evening. Would you welcome Dr. John Bolin.
1: You should all have a handout, yes? yes. Okay, good. President Barnes, Dean Lapsley, students and colleagues, visitors and friends, members of the Board of Trustees, thank you for being being here this evening. You honor me with your presence. Yesterday, we dedicated this library to Theodore Cedric Wright, pastor, abolitionist, freedom fighter, and the first African-American graduate of this theological school. This evening, we meet for the first time for a public lecture in the Wright Library. The Reverend Wright was born a free black man in a country that at the time enslaved persons of African descent, and most persons of African descent were enslaved by Christians who appealed to the content of their faith and the witness of their scriptures in order to justify relationships of domination, relationships of mastery and servitude. Mastery and servitude Images of these relationships appear frequently in Scripture, and quite often it is God who is master and God's faithful who are slaves. Quite often a righteous and faithful life is cast in the image of slavery's bondage. To the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that, you yield, that if you yield yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which yields to, leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. It's only an image, we might say, our devotion to God cast in the image of our slavery to God. But images have power. They do things. And according to theologians Willie Jennings and Jessica Wong, when God is regarded as slave master, those who would enslave others will cast themselves in God's image. White men have been especially good at casting themselves in this image of appealing to divine mastery in order to make human masters of themselves. Suppose we longed for a Christianity free of images of mastery and servitude Where God was no longer master the faithful no longer slaves Presumably we'd have to look elsewhere We need to find an alternative collection of images where in scripture would we look? (laughs) I'm gonna get there (laughs) Although, he begins a master. (laughs) Thank you, dear friend. This evening, I want to consider one one such place. It's the manumission scene in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. As we shall soon see, this scene has vexed interpreters across the centuries. My hunch, my proposal, is that we can make progress toward understanding as we turn our attention to dogs. Bear with me, friends. Jesus first, then dogs. (laughs) This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves any longer because the slave does not know what the master is doing but I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. If one task of Christian theology is to address the puzzles that scripture poses, then these words call us to that task. The scene they depict comes with puzzles. I count four. First, Jesus tells his disciples that he will no longer call them slaves. They are now his friends, and he no longer expects them to serve him as they once did as slaves to a master. This is puzzling. What sense does it make to say that their prior relationship, the one that Jesus and his disciples shared up to this point, amounted to a master-slave relationship? The disciples were not owned by Jesus. He did not threaten them with violence for disobedience, and their social position, while perhaps marginal, did not amount to social death. Nor can we easily conclude that the prior relationship was somehow analogous to mastery and servitude. The disciples do not appear to be dominated by Jesus. They do not appear to live at his whim and will in the same way that slaves live at the mercy of their masters. And if this is right, then how can the gospel writer insist that Jesus calls the disciples out of something like slavery's bondage and into friendship's freedom? Second, and related, what does this transition involve from something like a master-slave relationship to a friendship? This puzzle has two parts. On the one hand, we want to understand what in general distinguishes these relationships and what would be required to change one into the other. Jesus mentions knowledge. The slave does not know what his master is doing. The disciples are no longer slaves, he says, because he has made known to them all that he has heard from his father. But what exactly has he heard and revealed? And why does this knowledge generate a change in social status from slave to friend? On the other hand, we want to understand why this transition best describes this case, when, as I said, it does not appear that the disciples were subject to Christ's arbitrary will and power prior to this scene prior to the change in social status that it depicts. Third, how can Jesus, the word who was with God from all eternity, who is the life and light of all things, and who became flesh and dwelt among us, how can this Jesus befriend the disciples? Friends, Aristotle tells us, must be more or less equal in what matters with respect to quantity and worth. If they come to be separated by some wide, wide gap in virtue, vice, wealth, or something else, then they are friends no more, and do not expect to be. This is most evident with gods, since they have the greatest superiority in all goods. But it is also clear with kings, since far inferior people do not expect to be their friends, nor do worthless people expect to be friends of the best and the wisest. The steeper the hierarchy of power, position, and virtue between the parties, the less likely that they will share a friendship. If we assume, as I think we must, that the hierarchy that obtains between Jesus and his disciples is pretty steep, then what sense can we make of the friendship? And finally, once Jesus tells his disciples that they are now his friends, he then immediately makes their obedience a condition of their new social status. If they are his friends, he tells them, then they will acknowledge his authority and do as he commands. This is also puzzling. What sense does it make to say that friends command each other? that authoritative command and willing obedience are necessary features of their friendship? Don't we want to say instead that friends love each other, that they cherish each other, that they care for the well-being of each other, and that they long to rest and remain in the company of their beloved? And don't we want to say that these aspects of friendship, love and well-wishing and life together, are importantly at odds with the obedience to command that Jesus now expects? Exegetes across the years have mostly ignored the first two puzzles. They have instead concentrated on the last two, which taken together are thought to present an exegetical dilemma. Command and obedience, it would seem, are ordinary aspects of hierarchical relationships, not essential features of friendships. And this particular relationship, the one that abides between Jesus and the disciples, appears to be hierarchical in a way that would seem to preclude friendship if this is right, it would seem that Jesus can either command the disciples in the mode of a master, which he appears to do, or he can befriend them, as he claims to, but he cannot do both. Taking note of this exegetical dilemma, New Testament scholars have tended to grasp one horn and ignore the other. They either accent the love and intimacy that comes with the change in status from slave to friend, while discounting obedience to command as a condition of the new social status, Or they accent the obedience that Jesus expects while draining the new relationship of friendships, love, and intimacy. Robert Kaiser grasps the first horn. He writes The declaration that the disciples are friends involves a transformation of the usual servant master pattern. Friendship implies relationship and intimacy as opposed to the singular quality of the obedience demanded of a slave. That's a terrible sentence, students, don't imitate that one. (laughs) Um, But you get the point. Rudolf Boltman, D.A. Carson, and Ramsey Michaels offer similar remarks. Command and obedience they insist belong to uh, mastery and servitude, and thus are neither conditions of the new friendship nor essential features of it. C.K. Barrett rejects this interpretation as incompatible with what Jesus plainly says in verse 14, namely, that the disciples are his friends if they do as he commands. Michael Philophilus agrees and appeals to nuministic evidence in order to argue that the new relationship between Jesus and his disciples is best regarded as a variation on Roman political friendships. He has in mind the relationship between patron and client, ruler and ruled. Aristotle would call these friendships of utility. Each party has obligations to the other, each receives benefits and bears burdens, and yet the inequalities that structure the relationship mean that commands come from above, Obedience is expected from below, and a useful friendship's intimacy, if we can call it that, is conditioned on this exchange. Raymond Brown, my former teacher of blessed memory, apparently dissatisfied with these exegetical options, tries to locate a third way, one that does justice to both verse 14 and to the gospel writer's accent on love's bond and friendship's intimacy. He makes a couple of moves. First, He notes that the Greek word doulos covers both slave and servant. He then uses this flexibility in the application of the term to discount the transition from slavery to friendship. The disciples were servants, not slaves, before this scene, and they remain Jesus' servants even after they become his friends. Finally, Father Brown qualifies the significance of the conditional in verse 14. Obedience to Christ's commands does not confirm one's status as his philos, What does rather is the love that Jesus offers the disciples and that now abides between them. The upshot is twofold. First, Jesus is both master and friend, the disciples both servants and beloveds. And second, command and obedience are features of the antecedent master-servant relationship, not of the new friendship. Jesus has authority to command the disciples by virtue of being their master, not because he is now their new friend. So too, the disciples are required to obey not because of their new normative status, friend of Jesus, but rather because they remain his servants. Brown admits that the disciples might be moved to obey by their love for Jesus and by the recognition that they are now his beloveds, but motive is one thing, obligation another, and they are obliged to obey obey as servants, not as friends. With this conclusion, Father Brown offers a modern variation on an ancient and medieval exegetical inheritance. In this tradition, the friendship that Jesus offers the disciples does not liberate them from servitude, not exactly. The fact that scripture refers repeatedly to God's faithful as slaves or servants discounts this possibility. Rather, friendship with Jesus provides the disciples with a new motive to obey him, even as they remain subservient to his rule and subject to his command. So for example, in tractates 85 and 6, Augustine insists that it is not release from slavery that's on offer in this scene from john's gospel the scene does not depict a fundamental and exclusive change in normative status dulos de philos, whereby the disciples are now christ's friends but no longer his slaves rather it displays an act of quote great condescension whereby the lord condescends to call those his friends whom he knows to be his slaves The difference the friendship makes is that it enables the disciples to become good slaves, those who are appropriately obedient. This, according to Augustine, is the transition recounted in verse 15, not bound slave to liberated friend, but wicked slave to good, a begrudgingly compliant slave transformed into a willingly obedient one with friendship's love eliciting the change. All slaves obey their masters out of fear, says Augustine. And yet a good slave obeys him with clean fear, Timor Costas, a fear that has been purified by friendship, by the master's love for the slave and by the slave's return on that love. As slaves, the disciples are obliged to obey Jesus, their master, and they are moved to do so out of fear. Now his friends, their obedience remains slavish and fearful, but their fear has been transformed, purified by love. What does this transformation involve? Augustine doesn't say, but Aquinas does. In his commentary on John's Gospel, Thomas offers an interpretation of this transformation that begins with Augustine's remarks in tractates 85 and 6. Love casts out the slave's fear of punishment, his motive for obedience, and replaces it with Timor Custis et bonus, a fear that is clean and good, a good and holy fear. Thomas quotes Psalm 1810, the fear of the Lord endures forever. What does not endure, according to Thomas, is the slave's bondage. Here he departs from Augustine. The disciple whose fear has been transformed by friendship's love is no longer a slave, even if, as Thomas suggests, he remains a servant subject to his master's command. The servant, who is also a friend, obeys his master because he fears losing what he desires, his master's loving regard, the life they share, and the union they enjoy. Thomas calls this filial fear, which he associates with obedient children and submissive wives. Both remain fearful servants, these wives and children. I'm not recommending Thomas, okay? (laughs) I'm I'm just reporting here, okay? (laughs) Bear with me, please. Thomas calls this filial fear, which he associates with obedient children and submissive wives. I have neither. Um, <laughs> bo- both remain a servants, these wives and children. And yet in the domestic scene that Thomas imagines, they are distinguished from slaves by their love and knowledge. In the question on the gift of fear from the Summa teleogia, Thomas writes, the relation of slave to master is based on the power which the master exercises over the slave but the relation of a son to his father or of a a wife to her husband is otherwise, based as it is on the son's affection toward his father to whom he submits himself, or on the wife's affection toward her husband to whom she conjoins herself in the union of love. Keep in mind, everyone in this household serves the father, who alone has authority to rule and command. All obey his dictates, and all do so out of fear, either of power and punishment or of offense and disapproval. None are fully free, although there are degrees of liberty here. Returning now to his commentary on John's Gospel, Thomas draws a three-part distinction. Thomas is the distrin- distinction drawer, our excellence. He gets, to a, he gets to a problem and he says, here's five distinctions, now learn them. So here's three. There's the liberty of free persons, the bondage of bad servants, that is to say slaves, and the portion of liberty enjoined by good servants, that is, by obedient and affectionate children and wives. The free person acts for the sake of himself in accord with his own loves. He determines his own ends, chooses his own means, and so acts by himself because he is moved to the work by his own will. The slave, by contrast, the one who is a bad servant, does not act for the sake of himself, For ends that he has identified and endorsed on his own. Rather, he acts for the sake of ends specified by his master, which he seeks not because he endorses their merit, but because he fears the master. Nor does he decide when he will seek those ends or by what means, but rather he acts entirely by the will of the master as if by a certain compulsion. In between these two, at least in terms of liberty, is the good servitude of children and wives a good son does not act for the sake of himself, but rather for the sake of ends determined by his father. And yet he acts by himself insofar as he moves himself to the work, presumably because of his love for his father, presumably because his love for the father elicits his wholehearted endorsement of those ends, and because he chooses the means that his own deliberations have identified. This is good servitude, says Thomas, because the son is clearly moved by his own will, inclined by love to accomplish good works. But why exactly is this servitude? Why is this son half slave and half free simply because he falls under the jurisdiction of another? Doesn't the fact that he accepts his father's rule and endorses his father's ends replace his qualified bondage with a full portion of liberty? Consider, for example, our dear students. When they enroll in our courses, they fall under our rule. On the first day of class, we distribute a syllabus and thus promulgate the laws of the course. Those laws specify a collection of proximate and distant ends. The distant ends regard the purposes of the course as a whole, the theological knowledge acquired, the academic skills learned, pastoral wisdom obtained, the contextual competencies developed, and so on. The Proximate ends regard the assignments, the tasks geared to those distant ends, the reading required, the lectures given, the reading work due, and so on. And presumably, by enrolling in our courses, and crucially, by remaining in them after the first day, (laughs) after the laws have been promulgated, our students accept our rule, and at least provisionally endorse the ends that we have determined for them. As the semester progresses and the deadlines mount, they may feel as though they are children in the household of patriarchy, half slave and half free, but of course they're not. But why not? We might think it's because they can exit the course whenever they like and suffer the consequences come what may. But of course, so can a son. He can leave his father's household, escape his father's rule, and live with the consequences. The answer, I think, is accountability. In the patriarchal household that Thomas imagines, the son can either submit to his father's rule or exit the household. What he cannot do is remain, speak his mind, and hold his father to account. He cannot challenge the household laws his father has laid down or critique his father's application of them. And even if there is a collection of norms that might be appealed to in order to assess the father's rule and hold him to account, in this household, the son is not authorized to make that appeal. Rather, the son who willingly submits to his father's rule in effect agrees to live at his father's mercy, subject to his father's arbitrary power. Our students, by contrast, are not so subject, ideally. They do not live in our mercy. They may not specify the ends of a particular course or determine its assignments and reading lists, but they are entitled to ask us to account for the importance of those ends and for the merit of those assignments and for the treatment they receive in our courses. If the reasons we offer in reply do not satisfy them, then they are, by procedures formal and informal, authorized to critique the course and the legitimacy of our rule. So long as those procedures are themselves just and effective, and that's a big so long, we, I'm serious, it is, it's a big so long, so long as the procedures are themselves just and effective, we can say that students fall under the jurisdiction of another, but they're not slaves, not even by half. Returning now to the, good and the question of good and bad servitude. Thomas tells us that the distinction can also be drawn with respect to knowledge. The bad servant, the slave, according to Thomas, is related to his master as a tool to the worker. Just as the tool shares in the work, but not in the reason for it, so too the slave shares in the work, not in the master's reason for doing it. Thomas's tool analogy is only half right. A hammer doesn't understand what the carpenter is doing as she pounds a nail. Neither the activity performed, the pounding, nor the proximate end sought to fasten this board to that. Slaves, by contrast, have knowledge of precisely this kind. Indeed, they must if they are to act in accord with the master's command, although degrees of comprehension are imaginable here. Commanded to hop on one foot, the the obedient slave will understand the activity, the hopping, but perhaps not the end, which might be hidden or absent by a sly or capricious master. Commanded to pound nails with a hammer, the slave will not only understand the activity, the pounding, but also its proximate end, fastening boards, building a fence. What he might not comprehend, and here the tool analogy returns, are the master's distant ends, her reasons for building this fence on this day in this place. Without this additional knowledge, the slave does indeed become the master's tool moved only by another and not by himself. Good servants, by contrast, act by themselves even as they obey the commands of another, and one difference, according to Thomas, is knowledge. Unlike slaves, they understand the final ends of the master who commands them. Children and wives in patriarchal households will have access to this knowledge, or so Thomas thinks, but so will servants who have become friends. Friends, after all, are intimates, who share secrets with one another. Which is precisely what Jesus does across John's gospel. He tells the the disciples about heavenly things. That he came from above, that he was sent by the Father who loves him, that he is the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, and that those who believe in him will live though they die. According to Thomas, these things, now revealed, generate both Christ's authority to command the disciples and their recognition of that authority. The revelation makes his commands intelligible and their obedience willing. On this reading, the disciples are servants moved by love to obey a master whose commands they now understand. Their friendship with Jesus provides motive and intelligibility, for like a friend, Jesus has revealed his secrets to them. And yet his authority to command and their obligation to obey follows from his mastery and their servitude not from the friendship they share. Call this the traditional interpretation of John 15, verses 12 through 15, which seems to find support from what we know about slavery and patronage in first century Rome.
0: Augustine's objections
1: aside, the activity depicted in this scene is manumission. Jesus is freeing his slaves. According to historian Richard Saller, in the early empire, Manumission was the most important benefaction that a master could bestow, one which put the freedman under a heavy moral as well as legal obligation. Freed slaves were, in effect, clients of their past masters, who were now their patrons, and to whom they were expected to give a certain deference and obliged to provide certain services. Since this patron-client relationship assumed a demeaning gradient of social status and power, they were often described euphemistically in the language of friendship, and an implied equality. By these lights, Jesus calls the disciples friends precisely because they are his freed slaves, because bonds of affection and obligation bind them, and because he does not want to humiliate them despite their lower position in an unequal relationship. The desire that motivates this traditional interpretation to read scripture whole, John 15, verses 12 through 15, in light of the rest, I think is laudable. The conceptual sophistication that Thomas in particular brings to the exegetical task is impressive. The connection to ancient traditions of manumission and patronage is suggestive. Crucially, defenders of this interpretation do not assume, as so many modern exegetes do, that love distinguishes friendship from servitude. It doesn't. Good or bad, slave or half-free, servitude is compatible with love. It might even include features typically associated with friendship's love, mutual well-wishing, life together, shared secrets, and effective union. Paternalistic husbands and fathers can certainly love their wives and children in this way, even if they alone govern their households, and even if their rule is arbitrary, their power neither constrained by due norm nor held to account by those subject to it. So too, the slave master can, at least in principle, offer this kind of love to the slave, even if actual examples are few, even if imagining them is, for us, obscene, horrific. If the new relationship between Jesus and the disciples displayed in this scene is, in fact, something like the relationship between patron and client or former master and freed bondsman, if servitude remains even after friendship has been bestowed, its love offered, and its secrets revealed, then it would seem that this variation on Augustine's exegesis defended by Thomas and adapted by Father Brown, has merit. And yet. There's at least one compelling reason to dissent. Just this. The traditional interpretation fails to acknowledge what verse 15 plainly says, namely that Jesus releases the disciples from servitude as he offers them friendship. The traditional interpretation disregards and therefore fails to account for the fundamental change in normative status, the substitution of philos for dulos that verse 15 plainly depicts. Support for regarding verse 15 as signaling precisely this fundamental change comes from classicist David Constant, who argues that while philia has a broad semantic range, the noun philos does not. Gathering textual evidence from Aristotle, Xenophon, Greek tragedy and public orations He contends that philia refers to any attachment that involves affectionate feelings. It can qualify all kinds of relationships. When applied to a particular person, it typically picks out a dear one, someone offered special affection, but not necessarily friendship. By contrast, a friend, a philos, according to this argument, occupies a distinct social status, different in kind from patron, client, servant, slave, or kin. The difference is manifest in the distinct collection of obligations and entitlements that come with being a friend, different in kind from those that attach to other social statuses. Mutual friends, for example, are obliged to assist, endure, protect, and comfort each other in specific ways that, say, mere acquaintances are not. So, too, friends are entitled to address, challenge, and correct each other with words that would be unfitting if they were said to a patron, a child, a stranger, or a boss, or to a professor, or pastor for that matter. And note the assumption here is that at least some degree of equality abides between the friends, and, some to, uh, and so to some measure of reciprocity with respect to obligation and entitlement. These degrees and measures can vary. Constant argues that philos became a social status distinct from other kinds in the fifth and sixth centuries during the heyday of Athenian democracy. Friendship became the ideal instance of the bond between free citizens who understood themselves to be equals and who acknowledged no hierarchical distinction among themselves. Jump to the first and second centuries of the Roman Empire and strict equality between potential friends is no longer assumed. Instead, we find friendships that struggle to remain true in relationships of unequal power, wealth, and status. Juvenal's fifth satire, as Constant reads it, depicts persons of lower rank who pose as friends and yet are not, precisely because they resort to unbecoming begging and flattery in order to secure an advantage. True friends resist this temptation. They are sincere and dignified, not hypocritical or servile. Crucially, when they are of lower rank, they exhibit courage, speaking frankly to their friend, correcting their errors, Holding them to account for what they have said or done or promised, and expecting reciprocity and command and obedience. And if they are true friends, they will do all this while simultaneously acknowledging how the inequalities that divide them from their friend qualify the entitlements and requirements that come with the friendship. They will speak candidly about some matters, but not all. They will be entitled to hold their friend to account for some words and deeds, but not others and they will be authorized to issue commands about some things and in some circumstances, but not all. If this is right, then perhaps we can think of the friendship that Jesus bestows upon the disciples in verses 14 and 15 in something like these terms. He is no longer their master. They are no longer his slaves. They are now his friends, and they will treat each other as true friends do, loving the other for themselves, wishing each other well, sharing activities and ends, spending time together and trading intimacies, but also speaking candidly, offering correction, practicing accountability, issuing commands, and expecting obedience. And they will do all this across a gradient of acknowledged inequality. You will notice that I have followed Constance's lead and included command and obedience on this list of friendship's distinguishing marks. And you will recall how this aspect of friendship, expressed in verse 14, has confounded interpreters of this scene from John's Gospel ancient, medieval, and modern. They have assumed that command and obedience belong to relationships of mastery and servitude alone, certainly not to friendships. And so they have concluded that Jesus can either command the disciples or befriend them, but not both. But why make this assumption? On reflection, don't we want to say that issuing commands and expecting obedience are ordinary features of most relationships? Poet, professor, Essayist and animal trainer, Vicki Hearn, puts the question this way. If I can't say to you, should the occasion arise, duck, or put the broom in the closet when you're done, or no mayonnaise on mine, or lower down, ah, that's it, then it's not clear what sort of relationship we can have. What if I can't give the command, stop? Notice how Hearn poses the question of what can and cannot be said by asking about the existence of a relationship that might authorize a command. Due entitlement to command and so too just expectation of obedience are, by these lights, features of relationships and roles that we consider more or less good because they have survived critical scrutiny, at least so far. Thus, a professor can say to her students, turn in your papers on Tuesday. Precisely because she is a professor, and because these are her students. Because all things being equal, professors are entitled to make commands of this kind to the students they've agreed to teach. And again, all things being equal, her students are obliged to, to obey commands such as these, commands that accord with her role as professor and that are ordered to pedagogical aims that befit both the content of the course and the actual students enrolled. Other roles and relationships that have also survived critical scrutiny authorize other kinds of commands, and generate equivalent obligations to obey. Thus, a doctor can say to her patient, take one pill after each meal. A coach can conclude a training session with a mandate, practice this on your own, once an hour uh, hour, uh, each day. And a civil magistrate can promulgate a law, file your taxes on April 15th. In this respect, the relationship shared among friends is no different. When Mimi, my wife, but also my best friend sends me a late afternoon text, get milk on your way home. I would do well to regard myself as having been commanded by her. (laughs) She did not prescribe a course of action. You should get milk on your way home. She did not make a request. Would you please get milk? Or a suggestion. It would be good, don't you think, if you stopped on your way home and picked up some milk. She could have resorted to any one of these speech acts, but she didn't. She issued a command, get milk. And of course, she's entitled to issue this command to me and all things being equal, I am required to obey precisely because of the intensity of the bond and distinctive intimacy of the friendship we share. If I receive a similar text from one of my other friends, Bruce McCormick, let's say, (laughs) fetch some milk on your way home and bring it by the house. My first thought will be that Bruce has addressed the wrong person. Big thumbs on a small contact list. (laughs) He meant to text Mary, his wife, not me, his neighbor and colleague. If it turns out that he has indeed commanded me, and deliberately, my next thought will be that he has misjudged the character of our friendship. Its bond is less intense, our life together less intimate than he imagines, and thus he has... (laughs) (laughs) He's mistaken mistaken to think that his entitlement to command me extends to ordinary errands. It doesn't, sorry. Even so, if we are friends, and we are, if friendship's love binds us in some degree, and if our lives are entangled in some measure, then he is in fact entitled to command me about some things. About my job, he might say, stop complaining. You're lucky to have one. About exercise, uh, about, about my flabby flesh, he might say, go, get some exercise. About that persistent pain in my lower back, he might say, don't wait, see a doctor. About that persistent sorrow in my soul, he will certainly say, get to church. It'll do you good. If this is right, if command and obedience are ordinary features of most relationships, certainly friendships, Then we have addressed one of the four exegetical puzzles that we began with. In this scene from John's Gospel, Jesus releases the disciples from servitude, befriends them instead, and like a friend, commands them, love one another as I have commanded you. What then of the three remaining exegetical puzzles? Recall, we asked, what did the prior relationship amount to, the one that included the disciples' servitude and Christ's mastery? What did their change in social status involve, master and slave, to mutual friends? And how can we make sense of this friendship, given the vast inequalities in status, knowledge, and virtue that divide Jesus from the disciples? Masters command their slaves because they can, because they're masters. This is what masters are entitled to do. Slaves are obliged to obey for the same reason, because of their social status. Masters can command as they like, and sometimes do, because again of their social position, but also because coercive power and the threat of violence often accompany their commands, and because their slaves are not entitled to hold them to account for the commands they give, the violence they use, or the authority they assume. If the disciples were slaves, and Jesus was their master, Then Jesus could command the disciples as he liked. As subject to his mastery, they were obliged to obey. And they lacked entitlement to hold Jesus to account for the commands that he gave, or to the content, or to their content. No doubt the love that Jesus had for his disciples was expressed in each of his commands, and surely certain commands, and so too the resort to violence, were ruled out as incompatible with that same love. Still, Insofar as Jesus commanded as a master who is unaccountable to those he commands, there's a very real sense in which the disciples lived at his mercy. In the same way as their friend, Jesus could command the disciples and expect their obedience. As before, entitlement comes with the social status. And yet, unlike the case of mastery, in friendships, the source of this entitlement is not immediately apparent. What is it that entitles one friend to command another? What is it exactly that authorizes Jesus to command the disciples as their friend? And what is it about the friendship that creates their obligation to recognize his authority? If we could get a handle on this, on what entitles one friend to command another, then we could say what the transition involves, mastery and servitude to friendship. This would be progress but it would not conclude the matter, if only because it's not at all clear that we can make sense of a friendship that stretches across such a great divide from God incarnate to mortal creature. For help with these questions, I suggest we uh, turn to Vicki Hearn, whom we've already met. to The story she tells of training Salty, an English pointer, she trains Salty to fetch. On her telling, this involved bringing Salty into her household, living with Salty, spending lots of time with Salty, and initiating Salty through practice, repetition, affirmation, and correction into the shared activity we call fetching something for someone. This is not the activity that dogs like Salty do by nature, running after a stick that has been thrown. Rather, it involves bringing the stick back to the person who has thrown it and dropping it at her feet because she requires it and because she has issued a command to retrieve it. According to Hearn, training Salty to do this involved helping Salty understand the importance of this activity for the members of this household. It involved helping Salty come to love this activity itself and eventually to revere it as sacred as the activity that binds him in love with her, the person who is authorized to command him to fetch. Crucially, the training involved helping Salty acquire a small collection of concepts and to apply them with growing competence and creativity in the context of the activity. Hearn recounts this story of training Salty in her essay collection, Adam's Task, calling animals by name. The third essay is entitled How to Say Fetch. The book is beautifully written and philosophically complex. Hearn's efforts are morally serious and spiritually powerful. I can only summarize some of her basic claims and hope that you'll be sufficiently intrigued to read her work on your own. One of those basic claims is that activities and concepts come packaged together. A concept can be acquired only within the context of a human activity. And a human activity can be understood, its ends, norms, and purposes, only as a certain collection of concepts is acquired and deployed. This tight packaging of concepts and activities calls to mind the idea of a language game, an idea developed by the great Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein in his great work The Philosophical Investigations. In the second paragraph of that book, he describes the following game. Let us imagine a language meant to serve for communication between a builder A and an assistant B. A is building with building stones. There are blocks, pillars, slabs, and beams. B has to pass the stones, and that in the order in which A needs them. For this purpose, they use a language consisting of the words block, pillar, slab, and beam. A calls them out. B brings the stone that he has learned to bring at such and such a call. Conceive this as a complete primitive language. Hearn's essay, How to Say Fetch, is just an exegesis of that paragraph. The lang- she, w- she was the unfortunate privilege of being married to a philosopher. <laughs> the language salty, and she, I mean, you should just learn about Hearn. She was just amazing. She was a, a published poet, a great essayist. She taught, she taught poetry at Yale. She was the premier animal trainer in Hollywood. She died young. i will to talk about her Hollywood days in a minute. The language Salty acquires as he learns to fetch sticks and dumbbells, not blocks and slabs, is indeed primitive in precisely this way. The human activities and commands that he comes to understand, not only fetching, but also healing, sitting, coming when called, and so on, are few. The list of human concepts he acquires is short, and his ability to apply them is certainly limited. Even so, Hearn makes a compelling case for thinking that Salty can actually retrieve on command, that he can actually deliberately fetch something for someone, precisely because he grasps and deploys a small collection of human terms. Training, she insists, confers nobility, character, and dignity on Salty, precisely because it enables him to do by second nature what he is disposed to do by first, namely to respond appropriately and willingly to the normative demands of certain activities and concepts, certain persons and commands. At this point, some of you may be thinking, what a lot of nonsense this is. Or as Hearn puts the uh, the objection, isn't this talk of language and activity, of command and obedience, of freedom and dignity, just a sentimentalization of the enslavement of domestic animals? If the dog trainer commands, she must be a master. If the dog obeys, he must be enslaved. We've heard this complaint before. In reply... Hearn asks us to consider the wolf, to consider its place in the drama of salvation she's telling. In the beginning, God created all things and placed Adam and Eve in a garden where they called every animal by name and where every animal came when they were called. But then, here I'm quoting Hearn, Adam and Eve themselves failed in obedience. And in this story, to fail in obedience is to fail in authority. Most animals, uh, where am I? Yeah, most animate creation responding to this failure turned pretty irrevocably from human command. The tiger, the wolf, and the field mouse refused to come when called to recognize our naming. One may say that before the fall, all animals were domestic, that nature was domestic. After the fall, wildness was possible, and most creatures chose it. For a time, Hearn trained animals for Hollywood films. On a couple of occasions, she worked with wolves, And yet on her telling, it wasn't exactly training or teaching that went on, if only because the wolf's teeth and the tenacity of his opinions clarified his fundamental disinterest in taking up human activities. (laughs) She admits that through stubborn and hard-nosed conditioning, a wolf might be brought to go through something resembling retrieving, but even so, the wolf never sees the point. Recall Thomas's portrait of slavery. The slave knows what the master wants him to do, but without necessarily knowing the point of the activity, the proximate and distant ends. And while he might obey because he acknowledges the master's authority to command, this isn't necessary either. He might simply fear stubborn power and the master's hard-nosed willingness to resort to violence in order to secure obedience. A wolf can be enslaved, used like a tool, but not trained. The biblical drama of salvation continues. After the fall, wildness was possible, and most creatures chose it, but a few did not. The dog, the horse, the burrow, the elephant, and the ox, and a few others agreed to go along with humanity anyway, thus giving us a kind of second chance to repair our damaged authority, to do something about our incoherence. Training in this story can, through its taught catharsis, cleanse our authority for various, various stretches of time of Nietzsche and rosamond Without that catharsis, dogs very properly withhold full obedience. A dog can be enslaved, just as a wolf can, with stubborn power and hard-nosed violence. But a dog can also be trained, if only because a dog is willing to share our life, take up some of our activities, and in some measure understand their point. At issue here is a distinction we've been trying to grasp, the distinction between the unaccountable power and potential violence that accompanies mastery and the genuine authority that, when recognized, elicits friendship's obedience. And notice, in the fall story that Hearn tells, it's our authority to command the dog that has been damaged, that tempts us to respond with mastery's power and that training might restore. When Hearn first brought Salty into her household and started to to train him, the flow of intention was all one way. She determined the time and circumstances of the training. She picked the activities that he needed to learn, the sitting, healing, and fetching. She deployed the concepts that he needed to acquire. She issued the commands that he needed to understand and eventually obey. At first, he responded slavishly compelled by power and fearing correction if he wanted something from her his only resort was begging but as the training progressed Salty grew in understanding he started to get the point of the fetching and the purpose of the commands with their lives now entangled love between them grew and Salty now obeyed Hearn like the obedient son the half slave that Thomas describes because he feared losing her affection and receiving her reproach And then, after a while, intention started to flow both ways. Salty was now performing full-blown retrieves in response to Hearn's command. In movements purposeful, serious, and joyous, he was now responding to the command fetch with a degree of precision and fire that distinguishes an altogether different obedience. One day, while Hearn sits at her desk, Salty fetches his food dish. Without glancing at Salty, Hearn takes the dish, sets it on her desk, and continues her work. Undeterred and with obvious delight in the activity, Salty then fetches a wastebasket. (laughs) This gets her attention. She writes, there's a great deal to say about this, but all I want to say here is that I am struck by a new wonder at the propriety of commands, and also at how the coherence of the commands depends on my ability my willingness to hand over authority to Salty. In a friendship where some degree of equality is required, it is the willingness to obey that confers the right to command. Or as Hearn puts it in her fall story, to fail in obedience is to fail in authority. No doubt Salty's authority to command Hearn as a a friend is limited by the handful of activities that they can share and love and the short list of concepts that he can understand and deploy. And surely his ability to command her attention by initiating variations on one of those activities, fetching something for someone, doesn't extend much beyond supper dishes and wastebaskets. Hearn's capacity for imaginative variation and thus for command obviously extends much further to other objects and other relationships. And while Salty's nature sets the terms of what's possible In this relationship, he can be trained to fetch, but not, say, saute asparagus. It is Hearn who activates the possibilities. It is Hearn who teaches Salty his name, that he might be called, who trains him in activities that he might come to understand and love, and who issues commands that he might eventually obey. It is Hearn who imagines the possibility of friendship with Salty, and who eventually surrenders her authority thus enabling Salty to command her as she commands him, as a friend. I must conclude. We began by acknowledging the need to replace mastery and servitude with some other image of our relationship with God. In John 15, we have one such image. Jesus releases his disciples from slavery's servitude, befriends them instead, and commands them to love one another. Aristotle would encourage us to resist this image. The gods cannot befriend human beings. The exegetical tradition has encouraged us to resist the replacement. Friends cannot command. With Vicki Hearn's help, I've tried to resist both conclusions. If the taught catharsis of training can forge a friendship between a human being and a dog, one that includes mutual command and obedience, then perhaps the taught catharsis of grace can do the same for Jesus and us despite the differences that divide us. And while the Gospel of John does not explicitly regard our salvation as, say, Paul does, as the wild becoming domestic under the tutelage of the Spirit's grace, it does contend that Jesus commanded the disciples as slaves, as Hearn commanded a wolf. And it does suggest that salvation involves both friendship and domestication. Hearn helps us see how these two images of salvation might be regarded together. There are many details that need to be worked out here. Which activities and concepts did Jesus help the disciples learn such that that they might become friends? In what sense was this language that they shared together primitive, at least for the disciples? How did accountability work in this friendship? What exactly makes this friendship unequal? And how did those inequalities affect the command and obedience found within it? Crucially, if one such inequality regards the disciples' ragged virtue, their spotty record of obedience, then how far did their authority to command Jesus actually extend? And of course, while the risen Christ still commands us, and why we still struggle to obey, it's not exactly clear how we might command him, or how he might receive our commands. Still, if our relationship with Christ is something like a friendship mediated by grace, and if, as Aristotle says, friends become something like each other, then perhaps the Christian life can be regarded as the place where we befriend each other in Christ's name, commanding, being commanded, and obeying each other as Jesus has taught us. Thus we say to our friends, love one another. Go and sin no more. Come to the table. Now take. Take. Now eat. Thank you.